Okay, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 22. We are continuing through the book of Exodus, and over the past many months here, we have, we have been camping out in Exodus 20 through 23, which is commonly referred to as the book of the covenant. And this includes the section on the Ten Commandments, but also continues through chapter 20 and all the way into chapter 23 as well. And it is a, a long list of rules and regulations that were meant to govern the nation of Israel. And that is a section that we remain in this morning as well. And, and similar to last week's message, our entire text this morning is a detailed list of laws that are meant to preserve order and promote holiness in God's people. And some of these rules may sound a little strange to us in our day in society, but what's happening here is, is Moses and those who are governing God's people with him are seeking to take the Ten Commandments and apply them to their day. And so as people are, are coming with their issues and their disputes, they're saying, how do we apply these Ten Commandments to our society today? And so this is not an exhaustive list of God's commands. They're just basic guidelines that Israel used as they sought for justice and right living in their day. And these may not be the most engaging sets of laws to read over today. It might be like if you had a friend who's a lawyer and you go over to their house and you start browsing through their law books and it's all like civil law 23.4.3.C, not the most interesting read in the world. And it might not seem like it, it applies to all areas of our life anyway, but, but just like Joel shared with us last week, these verses are not just Old Testament commands. They are also a picture into the heart of our God. The detail and the practicality of these laws shows how much God cares about every area of our lives and how he wants good for us and how much he cares about order and holiness and joy in the lives of his people. And so even as we read this text and we, we interact with some of the, the cultural oddities of it, let us remember that this is the word of God meant for our good, meant to produce worship, meant to produce righteousness in our lives. So with that in mind, read along with me, beginning in Exodus 22, and we will start in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who are poor, you shall not be like money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. 
You shall not delay to offer them the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your auction and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be, malicious, to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with any who do evil. You shall not bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. You shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear side and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I have a main idea for our message this morning. I'm gonna say up front, this is the least creative main idea I've ever come up with because it is literally the exact same main idea as last week's message. That's because this is really just part two of Joel's message last week. And Drew is actually gonna be preaching part three of this message next week and so he will be using the same main idea as well. So if you don't like the main idea this morning, it's not my fault, Joel came up with it. And I can say that because he's on vacation and not here to defend himself, though he may be listening in, I'm not sure, hopefully not. But either way, our main idea is the same. My points are gonna be different, but the main idea is the same, and it is this. God lovingly cares for every area of our lives. God lovingly cares for every area of our lives. My three main points are this. God cares about your holiness, God cares about the needy, and God cares about justice. So point one, God cares about your holiness. Right off the bat, we come to an interesting law in verses 16 and 17, which says, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, at first glance, this might sound slightly offensive towards women and, and leaves us asking, what is the deal with this bride price? Are, are women being treated like property among God's people? Because there were, there were certainly times throughout history and certain cultures where that was the case. But that is not what is being spoken of here. What is being spoken of here is a custom of the day where if a man wanted to marry a woman, he had to prove to her and to his family, or her family, that he was willing to make a serious commitment. And he had the financial ability to provide for. So this is is not a sale of a bride, but instead a way to ensure her well-being and the commitment of the man. And the situation that this law is speaking of is, is if a couple slept together before marriage, that the man was required to take responsibility for providing for the woman. 
We don't know exactly what this bride price would have been. Perhaps it would have been a, a season of, of, of time where the man would have worked for her family. Perhaps it would have been money he would have been given to the family or perhaps even to the woman herself. So we're not sure exactly what it was, uh, but it was a way for him to prove his commitment to her, which is different than nowadays, right? Nowadays, you just you call up the, the girl's parents and you ask for permission to marry her, but it was not quite so easy back then, apparently. And in our text this morning, it speaks to a situation where, where if a man has, has slept with a woman, he's not just allowed to shake off his responsibilities of his actions. And, and it's not that, that women would not also have been seen as responsible for, for the sin of sex outside of marriage, but this does speak to God's intentions that men respect women and that God holds men responsible in a particular way to lead in their relationship in a way which does not take advantage of women and honors God's commands for sexual purity. And it's also helpful to note that in the translation here in verse 16, it's a, it's a tad confusing because it, it kind of makes it sound like it's a situation where the woman was seduced and taken advantage of by the man, but it's, it's probably better to understand this as a situation where the, the sexual relations are consensual. And we think this because if it were a situation of, of let's say, rape, then a much more severe penalty would have been imposed by the law. We see this in Deuteronomy 22 where it says, but if in an open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. So this is a clear command in scripture against taking advantage of a woman. The man would have been held responsible and the penalty for such an action would have been the death penalty. But that does not seem to be what our passage in Exodus seems to be referring to. And what we do see for sure is that this is one of the places in the Bible where we clearly see that God intends sex to take place only within the covenant of marriage. In a particular way, men are given the responsibility to preserve not only their own purity, but also to protect the purity of women. And in doing so, this, this honors the covenant of marriage, a covenant which was designed by the Lord to demonstrate the love of Christ for his church. And unfortunately, in our day, and, and so often even in the, the church as well, Men have failed to honor God by refusing to lead towards purity in their relationships. And God would call his people, and he would call the church, and he would call us as men towards holiness in this area. So if you are a single man, or if you are engaged to be married, or even if you are married now, you are called to set an example and to lead in such a way that honors women in your life and, and honors the call towards purity. God cares deeply about your holiness and about obedience in this area. So let us strive for obedience in this area, church. Moving on here through our text, because we have so much to get through this morning, we, we come now to verses 18 through 20, which lays out three other laws. And all of these laws, if violated, would have resulted in capital punishment. The first of these laws we see in verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. And then in 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. And then 20, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. 
And these three laws may seem a little random to be grouped together, but, but each of them pertains to the sin of false worship. So these laws are, are actually an application of the first and the second commands, which are to have no other gods and to worship no other gods than the true God, Yahweh. And the first of these applications we see in verse 18 forbids the practice of witchcraft. It says a sorceress, which was a, a woman who tried to gain spiritual power or knowledge through demonic influence. Now it says sorceress here, and so it's not clear why the text specifically mentions women, but, but there, because there are certainly laws throughout the Old Testament that pertain to men and women and forbid witchcraft. But, but commentators suggest that that probably what's happening here is that for whatever reason, sorcery was more prevalent among women in that society. So that's why it mentions women in particular. But either men or women, the, the reason that sorcery was forbidden is that it was an attempt to gain divine knowledge apart from God's revelation. It was an attempt to, to at times, even worse, uh, prevail over God's will through satanic powers, ultimately an attack on God's sovereignty. And God warned his people against any such practices like these. We might think that these practices were, were just Old Testament things, but, but the, the occult is actually very present in our culture even today. On, on Kirkwood Highway, just down the road, I, I drive by almost every day, just multiple houses that advertise fortune telling and palm reading, astrology and daily horoscopes are a common thing in our culture, attempts to communicate with the dead, magic charms, Ouija boards, not, not to mention just the, the blatant satanic worship, all of which are a part of our culture today. And we as a church are forbidden to participate in things of the occult. And some of these things might seem silly or, or, or fun to us, like flipping over a tarot card or, or looking at your daily scope to see if you're going to have a bad day or not. And, and of course, it, if you actually look at a horoscope, it's, you're not going to be sucked into satanic worship, right? We, we as Christians, we do not need to fear these things. And many of these things may be just gimmicks that people are pulling on vulnerable people, right? But, but there's a sober reality that the Bible speaks of, and that is that demonic powers in this world are a very real thing. And it would be naive to think that Satan is not able to entice us and to deceive us and to lead us away from the Lord through these means. And so we must never look to things of the occult for guidance or for power or for comfort in this life. To do so is a rebellion against the true God. And it's actually a, a return to the sin in the Garden of Eden where, where we listen to the whispers of Satan. We, we long for the forbidden fruit that makes us wise for the power that belongs to God alone. It's a discontentment in what God has revealed to us. It's a, it's a distrust in his power to provide for us and a, and a longing for more than he has provided. And the book of Isaiah speaks about this temptation and in chapter 8 it says, When they say to you, inquire of the medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, instead should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So this, this passage highlights the, the inconsistency it is for God's people to say that they trust in him, but then look to the occult for help. 
And just as in our day and in Israel's day, trusting in these things was so offensive to the Lord because he had proven himself faithful to Israel. He had guided them, he had cared for his people, he had spoken to them, he had rescued them, and so there there should be no doubt in their minds, as there should be no doubt in our minds, that our God is the one true God, who we look to for help in this life. He is the one we look to for wisdom, he is the one that we look to for comfort above all else. And the final verse in chapter 22, it, it highlights this as well, as it calls us to trust in God alone to consecrate our lives and the lives of our families to him. Acknowledge that he alone is worthy of our worship. And we can gladly do this, church, because we know who our God is. We know him to be the one true God who cares for us. And even in his call to obedience in these ways, his heart is for our good. And church, we can trust the Lord for that. God cares about our holiness. Second point this morning, God cares about the needy. As we jump into our next set of verses here, we we take kind of a a hard turn and we we enter into a section of the God's law that speaks about providing for those who are in need. And your, your Bibles may even have the heading laws about social justice covering this entire passage this morning. But this is especially true and relevant of verses 21 through 27, where God's people are commanded to give special attention to those who find themselves in vulnerable situations. And before we look in detail at these verses, I, I want to share a story that I read recently. It's a, a beautiful story about a town called Chilmark in Massachusetts back in the 1800s. This town was located on an island that had been recently populated by European settlers. And all these settlers had come from a region in Europe that had been known for hereditary deafness. And because of their isolated location on this new island and because of the the intermarriages that happened, it turned out that one in 25 people in this town were now deaf. In most societies, Physically handicapped people are forced to adapt to the patterns and the lifestyles of the non-handicapped. But that is not what happened here on this small town in Minnesota, or in Massachusetts. On a day, a reporter was interviewing an older island resident, and she asked him what the hearing people thought about the deaf people. And he replied, we didn't think anything about them. They were just like everyone else. The reporter responded that it must have been necessary for everyone to write things down on paper in order to communicate with them. The man responded in surprise, no, you see everyone here spoke sign language. The interviewer asked if he meant the deaf people's families, no, he answered, everybody in town. I used to speak it, my mother did, everybody. Apparently what happened in this town is that an entire community altered itself for the sake of the minority. Instead of the non-hearing community being forced to live in a disadvantaged isolation, the whole town learned to speak sign language. And this allowed the deaf community to enter fully into the benefits of that society. It's a, it's a beautiful story. And it, it highlights the, the theme of this next section because verses 21 through 25 speak to the idea and to the, the command of God that there be compassion and provision for those who are in need says, beginning in verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. 
for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you lend money to any of my people with you who are poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Now, you see in these verses uh, four categories of people that are talked about, the, the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. Now, surely these were not the only categories of people who were disadvantaged in any way in that society, but it, it seems that Moses included these four groups because in that day, these groups would have been those who are most at risk of being mistreated and uncared for in society. Widows would have not only lost their husband, but often also their livelihood. Orphans would have been uh, subject to injustice with no one to provide for them. The, the poor would have found themselves in situations where it would have been almost impossible to meet ends meet. And, and there wasn't really a system in place for them to work themselves out of these situations. And, and it's not like these groups of people aren't also vulnerable in, in our day in some ways, but, but in that day, in a particular way, they were the most at risk of being forgotten about or being taken advantage of. And God commands in scripture that those who claim to follow him must prioritize defending and providing for those in need. And we see how serious God is about this when he speaks to the consequences if Israel failed to do so. We see this in verses 22 through 24. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Whew. That's a weighty verse, church. God so cared for the helpless in society that when he saw them being mistreated, the judgment for that was death of the oppressor. Because holiness before God has an outward component to it, doesn't it? It's not just living lives of personal devotion to him in our homes. Holiness before God is an ambition to care for those who are in need. He demands this of his people because he himself is a God who loves to care for those who are in need. And for those of you who, who find yourselves, maybe even this morning, in vulnerable situations, know this. God cares for you. Perhaps you have lost a spouse Perhaps you were adopted as a child. Perhaps you are, are finding yourself in a, a desperate financial situation even this week. God loves you. And his heart is for you. He is committed to your protection. He is committed to your well-being. And he calls the church to be a place where no one is excluded or taken advantage of or forgotten. In fact, in the New Testament, it says the same in James chapter 1. It speaks of religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And church, as I think about God's heart in these verses, it makes me so glad to see the ways, the many ways that our church takes God's burden upon themselves. And in particular, I think of the, the many in our church who have or are pursuing adoption and foster care, 
who have taken up the call of God to make those who have no families part of their own and have loved them and provided for them. I think of the Petites, the Becklers, the Trinzies, the Gockenbachs, the Greenplates, the Lockermans, the Rudies, the Bats, Paratories, the garishes, and I'm, I'm sure that there are others as well. And I think of the, the many that have surrounded them and encouraged them and helped them in what they are doing. Church, I, I am not sure there's anything more pleasing to God or closer to the heart of the gospel than love that they have shown. And so for those of you here, here in this room who have, who have followed Christ in this way, you are an example to us. We see you we respect you, and more importantly, God sees you, and God delights in the work that you are doing. And church, let us be ambitious to follow Christ alongside these friends by supporting the work that they are doing. And in this way, what a wonderful way for all of us to love as God has loved us. Throughout scripture, the, the message is loud and clear. The people of God must be a people who are committed to caring for those who are in need. And, and in, a, in a particular way, God calls us to care for each other within the body of Christ, which again makes us as pastors so grateful for the many ways that our church does this as well. We, we think of all those who give so generously to the benevolence fund that we take up once a year, which, which allows us to care for those within our church facing difficult times, which, which we do many times throughout the year. We think also the many ways that our church cares for one another on their own throughout the week, burden, bearing each other's burdens. This is a delight to the Lord when we do these things. And as much as, as it delights the Lord when we care for one another, he also asks that we care for those outside of the church. And we see this in verse 21, which says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Here, God is saying, welcome those even outside of your community because that used to be you. Remember Egypt, when you were enslaved, when you were homeless, when you were trapped in your oppression and I rescued you. God does not say to Israel, care for those who are in need because you are better than them, but because that is you apart for the compassion and help that I have demonstrated to you. To, to provide for those in need is the natural response of those who know God's grace. Kevin DeYoung says this. He says, God is the compassionate God, the strong one who became supremely weak so that he could save those who could not save themselves. And if you live your whole life and say, I'm not really that interested in finding weak people and helping hurting people, I'm not really interested in those who are vulnerable, that, the, the orphans and the widows. That's not my thing. Then you don't understand who you are or what God is like because that is you and that is me. We are helpless, hurting, weak, and vulnerable. God sent his son to us from the splendor of heaven. He who was rich for our sake became poor that he might save us who cannot save ourselves. That is the compassion of our God, church. That he sent his son, who as Hebrew says, went outside of the camp, 
was exiled for us, who took on our burn, who laid his life down on the cross that we might be welcomed in because he is a God who cares for the needy. And we are the needy ones, church. And if we have been loved like that, then let us also love like that. God cares about our holiness. He cares about those in need. And finally, we'll see that God cares about justice. And I begin with another story here. On the last day of the 2001 baseball season, Barry Bonds, who played for the Giants, hit a ball into the right field and ended up going over the wall for his 73rd home run, which was a major league record. And it was estimated that this ball was going to be worth upwards of $1.5 million. So, so needless to say, when the ball fell into the mob of fans, a, a violent battle broke out as everybody scrambled for this ball. One person claimed to have been assaulted as the ball was stolen from him. People jumped on top of each other. Multiple people claimed that they were the ones that caught it. Someone tried to switch out the real ball for a fake ball. And in the end, the police had to be brought in and broke up this fight. And they confiscated the ball and they put it in a vault in California. As a long legal battle ensued over who actually caught the ball. But because of the, the numerous false reports, in the end, they were never able to determine who caught the ball and was eventually auctioned off and no one ended up happy. And this story is unfortunately a picture of what so often happens in our society when there is a dispute. In politics, in the courts, in family arguments, in our workplaces, oftentimes even in our churches. It seems it is so often impossible to know the true story and this makes it so hard for justice to happen. Well, God is concerned that when disputes take place in the church, we do not act like a frenzied mob of people at a Los Angeles baseball park. And so we finish this morning as we come to these final laws that pertain to truth and justice. We begin in verse one of chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be malicious witness. And so these verses prohibit any type of gossip and slander among God's people. And they go on towards more specific application towards deliberately lying in the court of law. And, and both of these things are very applicable to us today in our society. But I, I want to focus for a moment more on the idea of gossip and slander and, and spreading false reports. Throughout the Bible, God has much to say about the idea of spreading false ideas about others. And he speaks often about it because it is such an easy thing to fall into. Oftentimes we, we can fall into this without even thinking about, perhaps we have a prejudice against somebody and, and we hear something negative about them and it's so easy to just pass that along without considering whether or not it's even true. Perhaps we're jealous of a friend or angry at a spouse and so we, we convince ourselves that there must be some sin in this person's motives and so we tear this person down with our words in front of others. Oftentimes we are way too confident in our own judgments of others. It's very easy to believe what we want. It's easy to spread false report and it's easy to believe false reports when it is spoken to us. Sometimes we do this without thinking about it and sometimes we know very well what we are doing. But regardless, false reports, gossip, 
slander are terribly destructive. They stir up controversy. They ruin relationships. They break up churches. I have, I have been a part of churches where, where lifelong friendships have been broken up because of gossip and slander. Years of partnership and ministry has been torn apart. And this is because it is so easy to be affected by what we hear about other people. Once an idea is placed in our mind, it, it plants, it takes roots, it begins to grow and spread, taking on a life of its own, and so often brings ruin. And God knows this, and he commands us against these things. Jesus does as well in Matthew 12. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Redeemer fellowship, let us not be careless with our words. Be careful with what we say about one another. And particularly if we have issues with that person because that's often when it's the most easy to spread false reports. Be careful what we hear. Be slow to believe rumors about one another. Be slow to be confident in your own judgments about one another. Let us instead speak to build up the church to preserve the unity of God's people. And and if we have failed to do this because we have caused harm to another one through false words or perhaps we have spoken true words but have done so with an intent to hurt, let us be quick to repent. First to the Lord who is so quick to show mercy and grace but also to those who we have hurt. Let us be quick to repent of these things. And let's be a church that values truth and refuses to spread false reports. And we must commit to this because, again, it is so easy to fall prey to this sin, especially when when others around us are doing it. It's it's so easy to join in a group of gossip, isn't it? We live in a a cancel culture where, where the majority often seems to carry the day but, but God actually speaks directly against that in, in verse two. He says, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. And interestingly, as much as we, as we have seen God's heart for the poor and the vulnerable, he warns against showing partiality in legal matters simply for that reason. Nor shall you be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. And just like we'd not want to be partial towards the rich or the powerful, which often is easier to do. And God warns us against that in verses six through eight as well. But, but so should we not be partial to the poor or the weak. No, God wants justice. His concern is for the facts and for the truth. And he calls us to be a fair judge as he is a fair judge. And it should be true in the courts as well as in our relationships within the church. God deeply cares about these things. And finally, as we we move towards a close here this morning, God commands his people to pursue justice and kindness for all people. Not just those within our church, not just those that we get along with, but everyone that we encounter. All those who are made in the image of God, even our enemies. Verse four through five says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. 
If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Now let's be honest. The odds of us ever happening across a donkey that needs rescuing is probably pretty slim. Even slimmer coming across a donkey of one of our bitter enemies, right? But that's not the point here. The point is that Christians must not look at anybody in need, even if they are our enemies, no matter how much we dislike them, no matter how much they dislike us, we must, not, we must not look at anyone and turn a blind eye to their need. Jesus commands the same in the Gospels. He says in, in Luke, but I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's a radical statement. He says, do good to those who hate you and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. As the church of Christ, we are called to imitate Christ, to move towards those who are our enemies and do them good, to refuse to gossip about those who mistreat us, to love even those who hate us. Why? Because that is what Christ has done for us. Has not Christ moved towards us when we hated him? Has not Christ come to our aid in our times of weakness? Has not Christ loved us when we did not deserve it? He has fought for us. He has borne the burden of the cross for us. He has clothed us in righteousness so that now his holiness has become our holiness. And he did all of this for us in our great time of need. For while we were still weak, at that time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. That is the great love of God for us, church. He loves us. He cares about our lives. He has given us Christ, and through Christ, we have been saved. Let us then strive for holiness. Let us care for those who are in need. Let us treasure justice, and let us show mercy and grace and kindness, just as we ourselves have received it from Christ. Amen.